Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, bro. It's Russo'sBrand.com. Get the real shoot for the most controversial personality in pro wrestling, Vince Russo. Stevie Richards Fitness. Hey, don't you think it's time for a band new you? Head over to StevieRichardsFitness.com and join the SRF resistance today. ProWrestlingTees.com. Get the coolest merchandise from your favorite independent pro wrestling talent worldwide. Head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support indie wrestling today. The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. You feel, feel but frustration, treachery, with no documentation, disease, led through lawyer. Will you witnesses, no one testifies, well I'm the cure to your disease, rage burns a brand new degree, you train your mouth with mistrust, now it's time to, Push. fuck you and all your insecurities, be my taste to test my abilities, hypocrites you dug your hole too deep, stretching the walls, no escape, it's too steep, ready with the bows, get out of my way, run with the bulls. It is Wednesday, May 13th, 2020, and you are tuned in to Running with the Bulls, Episode 4. You're presented by the HDM Podcast Network Online, HittingTheMarks.com, Hameen Media Online, HackerHameen.Podbean.com. My name is Jargo. I will be your host for the day. That's my tag team partner. He's the man, the myth, the legend. He's the real RBV. Rick, welcome back to Running with the Bulls. Yo, Jargo, the state of Indiana has reopened, and that means the ladies at Concepts, they're back to stripping, and that makes for one happy Ricky Pippen. Back again here, running with the Bulls. I got to tell you, this past week's episodes, they keep getting better and better, but but we're realizing we're almost at the end. Yeah. It's almost over, man. It saddens me. A deep sorrow within my soul. Yeah, And it's funny because now we're hearing about all kinds of people that are doing this. Like we're getting the Undertaker last ride thing on WWE Network. Uh, We heard that Kobe Bryant actually had a camera crew following him around during his final season. I think this is going to be, we we talk about the new normal. I think this is going to be the new normal. These larger than life stars, people like LeBron, Steph Curry, they're just going to have camera crews start following them around everywhere and just film their life because it's much more interesting than ours or really anything that's on television. Hey, once again, look at this. The Kardashians are the trendsetters. There you go. Yep. Everybody wants to be like the Kardashians. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, We're here today to talk about episodes seven and eight. And Huckleberry, we get to talk about baseball this week. Um, Even though baseball has been all over the news, hell, we just had a great like 10 minute conversation off the air about about everything going on with baseball and the NBA and potentially the NFL, college football. It's a very, very crazy time to, to be looking at the business behind the business. And we get a lot of that in episode seven with Michael going to play baseball. And absolutely some, I guess, some eerily true uh, parallels of what we are seeing today from Major League Baseball and what we were seeing back then with the, the strike season and you know asking the, the players in the union to flex in favor of, you know, 
in favor of what the the league and the owners themselves wanted here. Exactly what we're seeing. And a lot of that they illustrated inside of this episode is you've seen that backlash from the fans who vilify the players here. That's not necessarily a, a fair a fair case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, after defeating the Phoenix Suns to win the third championship, Michael walks away to go try his hands at minor league baseball. And we'll talk about the uh, Birmingham Barons here in a little bit because there was something that just irritated me to no end on this week's episode. But one of the things that has been talked about forever, and of course, you know, at Hameen Media, we have the conspiracy horsemen, so we have to talk about it. We have to talk about David Stern suspending Michael Jordan inexplicably for 18 months, which is what allows Michael to go and and play baseball. Rick, I've never bought into this. And in looking at the evidence again over the course of this week, I, I it's absolutely complete BS. Do you agree or are, are you subscribing to the David Stern conspiracy theory? Yeah, I will say this is this is an item, you know, one of the few issues here that, that I've had fun with over the years, especially if you if you really want to just, you know, to to anger a Jordan fan as yourself, you immediately go towards outlook. He got it was actually a cover up. They didn't want Pete Rose. They didn't want what happened to baseball to happen to the NBA and the gambling addiction getting out of control. And it ultimately even what we get highlighted here in the, you know, his father's murder, uh, those things that, you know, in just all these years later, I'm going to believe that one of the few things that have ultimately been able to be covered up from our media that will, you know, is going to exploit absolutely everything. This is it. This is the one thing that they've been able to keep under wraps. Uh, so again, I think it's there just mainly for obviously for the, the tremendous speculation and interest that that drives, but yeah, I'm not really buying into this thing here. Now, do I do I believe you know there there are some deep rooted issues there with more of the you know, they say it's not a, a gambling problem, it's a competition problem, uh, but I do believe that did lead to some some darker path. But I'm not placing that on you know this grand conspiracy theory that it was you know Jordan shaving points either here or there to cover spreads, manipulate the scores even on his way to championships, and then it was that this was about ready to to really just bust through the wall to Otis it to yeah, go, you know, come crashing down on the NBA. So yeah, I'm with you. Um, there was a time where I, I did kind of buy into this thing. Right. But I, to me that all died when Michael Jordan became the majority owner of the Charlotte Hornets or the Charlotte Bobcats at the time. I mean, you can, Try to tell me that there's this grand conspiracy and it was just between David Stern and Michael Jordan. David Stern was still the commissioner. There's no way Michael Jordan becomes a majority owner of a team if that would have been a legit suspension. I mean, that to me, that's the dagger right there. Well, inside of itself, think about how the turnover that we have probably seen inside of that commissioner's office, the league office, whatever, how close they were to the situation that would have had access to some sort of documents here. You know, it's not like Stern himself to some tremendous sleuth who's out there uncovering the breaking the case. You know, Prof would have been in there digging through the files, you know. Right. 
you know, it, they would have had investigators following this thing. And hell, I mean, just not a, a leak from and a source from inside the NBA. You'd have to be more worried about someone coming forward from the other aspect, the, maybe the criminal side of this, the gambling side. You know, who's taking, play, you know, handling these bets? Who's moving this money? Who's manipulating this? And who had the pull, the stroke in the hand involving Jordan to influence somebody? We've talked about it here during this series. You know, if if you're going to manipulate a sporting event, you don't go to the highest paid motherfucker on the court. Right. <laughs> you're manipulating referees and other aspects of it. Absolutely. Um, and then there's also this this new pieces of evidence that they kind of have unsurfaced throughout the course of this documentary. And I, I one of them that really stands out to me was Mark Vansel as he was talking and he said Michael had told him, you know, I'm, I'm going to shock the world. I'm, I'm going to retire and I'm going to go play baseball. And this is in 92. And he says, when? He says, I do it now, but Bird and Magic never won three times in a row. So, I, And I've got to do the Olympics. But if it wasn't for that, I'd be playing baseball this summer. So the, the rumblings were already out there. When we get to see how the bond, the relationship between Jordan and his father, and as incredible as he was at basketball and you know how driven and the passion that was there, it was a piece of his father's dream to see him succeed on the diamond. And then if you want to further the conspiracy theory, this is kind of the conspiracy theory episode when it comes to Michael Jordan on July 23rd, 1993, James Jordan goes missing after a road trip to go visit some friends. Two weeks later, his red Lexus is found near Fayetteville, North Carolina stripped for parts. The back window busted out and his body discovered in a creek in South Carolina. It would take another week for the body to be identified, even though everybody had a pretty good idea it was James Jordan. He had been shot in the chest, and this absolutely plays into the conspiracy theory. I remember the media just running absolutely wild with this. Not necessarily saying, you know, flat out, Michael Jordan is responsible for his father's death, and Michael Jordan's gambling is responsible for his father's death. They, that was everywhere. And it was just an absolute fabrication. It was a wrong place, wrong time scenario. It just happened that it was James Jordan. I can see that situation there. But even if, you know, those with the conspiracy theorists here, I could see where I don't think it was Jordan's uh, gambling that was, you know, that resulted in this tragedy. Uh, but I could see maybe where it was his dad's you know, where he got himself involved in some sort of issue. And you get into these weird doings like this, you know, they're set up like this. It's that is something that we, that we never will know. No, unfortunately we won't, but that absolutely leads directly to Michael going to play baseball. I think one thing that people forget was it was so close to the start of the season when Michael decided, yeah, no, I'm not going to play. I'm, I'm going to retire. I'm going to go play baseball. Like it, it just kind of came out of nowhere there. Um, and, and it's crazy seeing the media coverage now. You know what I mean? Is there anybody that them announcing their retirement would be like the worldwide global media event? Like even LeBron, if, if LeBron announced a press conference tomorrow and it got out, hey, LeBron's going to retire. I don't think there would be this kind of a media circus. Is there anybody like that now at this point? Well, you do got to remember, it, there was a lot of hoopla and, and pageantry around LeBron's his announcement. You know, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. 
uh, it, it kind of set that precedent. You know, it, it was its own focus of programming on ESPN. I mean, when have we ever seen that before? Uh, but I would agree with you now that where we sit here in 2020 and, and, and more so how connected we are to these stars. You know, I mean, everybody's just a tweet away. I mean, it's almost you're within tweets reach. So I, I think, you know, even if someone like LeBron said, yes, you know, uh, I'm hanging it up. I'm going to pursue. I'm an activist now, you know, because that's what he wants to be. He's the voice for his generation or he's going to get into Hollywood. I just think you would have such a great deal of people like, well, good riddance. You know, let's just keep the ball keeps bouncing. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case back then because you have a star like Jordan who is protected there. And is and truly is on that pedestal, where people feel like they're lose they're just losing so much of their their own enjoyment. You know, some of the best parts of their life would be walking away. The one thing that always added to the conspiracy theory for me was the fact that he went to play for the Chicago White Sox because Jerry Reinsdorf, this owner of the Chicago Bulls, also the owner of the Chicago White Sox, and Jordan was not making minor league baseball player money. He was still making like $3 million a year. He was vastly overpaid. Reinsdorf has a quote where he says, there was no reason to pay him other than he was underpaid his entire career, and he made a lot of people a lot of money. Well, Jerry Reinsdorf is well known to be one of the cheapest owners on the face of the planet, um, I, I, I don't see him just giving Michael Jordan a whole bunch of money out of the kindness of his heart. I always thought there was something else going on there, but I don't think we'll ever know what it is. Well, I think it's, it's kind of simple here. I mean, even though he is, you know, one of the notorious on the, the cheapo ends, uh, you know, I wouldn't quite say that he's like a Mike Brown with the Cincinnati Bengals, but you know, real relatively, he's, he's got a lock on that wallet and it's hard to crack that code, but he is sensible enough to realize where his payday does lie. And that was one Michael Jordan. So at this point, and you in the documentary and the post interviews here, and you got to believe they're in that moment. A lot of people were, okay, this is temporary. Let him, you know, let him go get that little side thrill. You know, you're stepping out on the merits, you know, to go test those waters. Eventually you're going to be wanting to come back home. You don't want to risk that opportunity of, oh, my God, Jordan's coming back. Now you've got this market, you know, that mad rush to grab him up. So, you know what? Go play your baseball. Have your fun. I'll take care of you. You're not going to be treated as just, you know, one of the the average Joes on the bus going, you know, dirt town to dirt town. You're financially stable. Remember that. You're still part of our family, our sports family. So, you know, 23 is always going to be waiting for you. But rather than 23, we see the birth of 45 as Michael dons the Birmingham Barons, the, the White Sox double A affiliate. Um, Rick, this just irritated the ever loving shit out of me uh, because Jerry Reinsdorf is quoted inside of this episode as saying, you know, well, we sent him to Birmingham because, you know, the media facilities were, were so much better. And I about blew a freaking gasket. Because I happen to know that in 1993, the Class A affiliate of the Chicago White Sox was located in South Bend, Indiana. Number one, that's so much closer to Chicago. And number two, Notre Dame is there. You mean to tell me that Notre Dame wouldn't let Michael Jordan hold press conferences on their freaking campus? Get the fuck out of here. It was not about the, the media. 
No, this was about the fact that the Birmingham Barons Stadium held almost twice as many people as the South Bend Silver Hawks or the South Bend White Sox, whatever you want to call them at that time. That's a beautiful stadium up there in South Bend, Indiana, but it's not real big. It's not a very big stadium. Birmingham, they could fit twice as many people in there, 162 nights. It was complete bullshit. This was all a money-making ploy for Jerry Reinsdorf, and I've always thought that Michael would have been so much better off if he would have went to A-ball instead of double-A ball. That's a ridiculous jump for anybody that follows minor league baseball. That It's probably the biggest jump inside of baseball going from A-league ball to double-A ball. All right. Uh, a number of items here. Okay, yeah, I mean, you want that – the bigger picture here. So it is a nicer media venue there for them. What else does that entail there? There's so much other things there. It's a Birmingham is a much nicer area. South Bend is a shithole. Well, that, Absolute, that, that entire part of, of Indiana is a shithole in my mind. Yeah, so outside of the stadium you're putting over, which kind of disagree. I've been in that stadium. It's okay, I suppose. But outside of the campus of Notre Dame, you don't want any part of South Bend, Indiana. I mean, it is a shithole. You make it sound like it's right, so scary. You, you've got this. You know, thinking really big picture, uh, Indiana itself just really isn't a pleasant state. <laughs> nope. All right, so you're down there in Birmingham. What time of year is this? You're down there in spring training. You got beautiful weather. You know, people are going south. It's a warm, inviting environment. What else does Jordan like to do when he's away from? competition he's out on the links you got all those golf trails down there you're not going to get any of that in south bend indiana you are not sending michael freaking jordan to south bend indiana what do you think of the the double a versus a ball conversation i mean jordan hits 202 51 rbis 30 stolen bases while he is in birmingham but I think those numbers would have been very, very different against Class A pitchers, which is what he probably should have been facing. That that double A jump is quite the jump inside of the minor leagues. Uh, absolutely, I, I do agree with you wholeheartedly. There, I mean, you, you're talking, I mean, not just night and day. I mean, we're talking whole different months on the calendar here in comparison of the talent you're going to get. You know, really looking back on this thing, and again, you know, you are. You, you're trying to make Jordan comfortable here and, and let him get into a situation where he feels it's going to be the best for him to succeed, the best surrounding. You know, he can keep you know that lifestyle of his there. Uh, but I almost would have seen like you know start him off, yeah, there in South Bend, but let him know, hey, this is going to be short lived, man. We're going to keep you there maybe two and a half weeks, run you out there every night, let you get a look at this thing, S- you know, sell a net market. You got more of a, a appeal there, and even if hell, I mean, like you said. I mean, you're within what an hour and a half, two hours of Chicago. I don't even. I mean, think you it's know, that far. you're gonna, you're gonna pack that place. Uh, yeah, if it's even that far. I mean, hell, from where you know I'm at in the middle of the upper part of Ohio, it's only a five hour train ride to Chicago. We go right through South Bend. It's like one of the last stops there. So, I mean, I would have started there. Let one hour see, and forty minutes. See that level. There we go. So. That's, kind of close there you, you know you get uh you get carjacked there in east chicago with by rivera <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then your next stop is south Bend. so there i go 
but yeah, you start there, you sell those tickets, let him see that level of talent and then make that adjustment, you know, and then you, then you almost, you're selling like, look how fast he progressed. Like, damn, he was already, he just moved up from single A. He's ready to go to double A. Uh, Terry Francona was his manager in Birmingham. Of course, Francona would go on to have a Hall of Fame-worthy managerial career. Rick, he swears if they could have got Michael 1,500 at bats, he probably would have made it to the majors. Now, I mean, you're talking three, four years inside of the minor leagues to get, get him 1,500 at bats. Um, what do you think? Do you think Michael stood a chance of making it to the Chicago White Sox because you know, you take that long off between playing baseball, you go, you, you have a complete NBA career to come into double a ball and hit two Oh two. That's pretty freaking impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking, I mean, just think about the potential here. If he was able to progress along in that fashion of how they had it projected, he would have been joining a, a pretty hot white Sox team then. Yeah, uh, because basically what derails Michael's baseball career is the 94 strike. Well, guess who the 94 strike really, really screwed over? The Chicago White Sox. The Chicago White Sox were going to go on to win the World Series in 1994, and there's not a single doubt in my mind about that. That team was absolutely ridiculous. But Michael Oh, yeah, they would have... They would have been able to hold that together going for a couple of years. Now, that's an interesting conversation inside of itself, so like a, another spinoff series. We could just go debate different things throughout sports. You know, who had, you know, who was impacted the most by that strike here? Because you look at, I mean, hell, man, the, uh, it's about that Expos team, how freaking stacked they were at that time. They were the best team in baseball. Yeah, but record wise, man, you, you look at that White Sox team when you got, Frank Thomas, and you've got Robin Ventura, and Ozzy Guillen is still out there. You've got Bo Jackson is on that team. I think Pudge was still catching for that team. You've got Jack McDowell on the freaking mound. And I, I'm not screwing with Black Jack McDowell in a freaking short series. I don't care how stacked that Houston team was. Uh, yeah, Houston had a hell of a team as well. So, I mean, it's be a, a tremendous debate there to sit there and, and really go back and look at that. What do you think? Do you think Michael would have came back or do you think that he would have stayed playing baseball? Because they don't really talk too much about that 94 strike. But I think everybody kind of knew that given Michael's star power, they were going to look to Michael and he was going to be the face of this baseball strike. If he didn't get the hell out of baseball and he wanted nothing to do with it. That was what really drove him out of baseball. Yeah, it is, you know, interesting how this even plays out. You know, if, if everything would have been as is, you know, then like run of the mill season progresses as it does here. Does he remain that focus just inside of baseball? I do have a feeling, though, that deep down inside why he was ultimately committed to that and what we're truly learning about Jordan throughout this series, you know, what makes him tick inside that competitive edge is that sitting back and watching those Bulls teams struggle as we get the one highlight clip where he's, he does see, uh, you know, just a heartbreaking loss there in the playoffs for the Bulls. You could see that starts kind of pulling at him. Uh, you could just read that in his body language and you know the things, you know, how he motivates himself. 
and this is especially here in episode eight, we really dive into this thing where he's almost he is just reaching for things where it's the world against Michael Jordan. But that's that's part of the greatness. It's something that I've really have loved throughout this series that I find inspiring about it is to really get into that mindset and that that fire that is lit with inside him that pushes him. You got to believe, you know, you know, where his heart probably is going out, you know, seeing what's happening to those teammates and that dynasty that he had built there. You, you know, that's building in him. He's like, man, I know I could go back and just recapture all of that. And it's going to take me to that next level. Well, let's talk a little bit about it because in 94, the, the thing that will always be remembered about the 94 bulls is Scotty throwing a temper tantrum. Um, and, and this is one of those things. And they talk about it on the show where they say, this is never going to leave Scotty Pippen. You're guess what? They're right. Absolutely. People like me who think Scotty Pippen was incredibly overrated. This in the migraine game are the two that people are really going to look at and kind of point out. Um, Scotty was supposed to be the man. He was supposed to be the alpha on that team and it just never really materialized. Rick, and this is why I've said Scottie Pippen, he's a great number two, but he never did it as a number one. He just did not have that alpha component to him that we see all over Michael Jordan. Uh, absolutely. And that is the difference here. And that's what it stands out. And you're seeing this regularly. And we remember, you know, reflecting back on his career. Uh, a handful of moments outside of the migraine and you know even inside of itself i mean you could kind of let that one pass but as time grows and you see these other examples you know that just kind of just all gets kind of thrown into that same pile there and it certainly does it separates as great as pippen was and I, you you acknowledge you know his his place inside of the history when we're talking about great players but you, you've got this level here and not even close to it so much, you know, beyond that is your true greats, you know, your Jordans, your Kobe's, LeBron, you know, even like a, a Shaq. And it, it was just those little tangibles of greatness that you that were lacking inside of Scottie Pippen. So the Knicks finally get over on the Bulls only to fall to Houston. And then we get to 95. Uh, Michael comes back, and I think one of the things that gets lost in the story of the 95 Bulls is that team was awful without Michael Jordan. The Bulls were 34-31 and 31 without Michael Jordan. Michael came back and basically willed that team into the playoffs. They get the freaking eighth seed, and they go up against the Orlando Magic. I wish they would have talked a little bit more about the Orlando Magic just to tell you how good that Orlando Magic team was um, it, because they put all the focus on Horace Grant. Never mind, you know, that you still have a very young and still developing Shaquille O'Neal and you have Anthony Hardaway at the peak of Penny. Um, and, and Penny is one of those guys that could have ended up top 10 list if he would have just been able to stay healthy. Oh, uh, you know, looking back at that and just remembering how dynamic that team was, how just star-studded, just the talent that was on that roster. I mean, hell, I mean, they're starting five. I mean, hell, Scott Skiles, correct? I mean, he, yeah. he ends up being their sharpshooter. Uh, who was the other? Yeah, the other guard in there that was their shooting guard. Jackson, something like Whatever. I can't recall off the top of my head right now. But, I mean, they were acts, They were stacked as a team and you're right i mean if it wasn't for those early injuries and it was just timing down there you know you'd, you'd have 
Shaq went down with an injury, so it's it's kind of shifted to Penny, and then Penny ends up being just plagued with injuries throughout his career. And what they bring in Horace Grant, hopefully, is that leadership role. Even he couldn't contain that, though, because it was ultimately egos. That would be the demise there of of the Orlando Magic. But you just remember the hype, the energy around that team, uh, that they were going to be that next great thing. Uh, then you have the excitement of, okay, the Bulls are back here. When are they going to get back to their greatness? It was an exciting time for the NBA. You know, and it's also one of those things that I, I always like to bring up when it comes to the Kobe and Shaq conversation. Because how come Kobe and Shaq just couldn't get along? Well, I'm going to guess for the same reason that Shaq and Penny couldn't get along. And what's the commonality there? I mean, like, I, I love Shaq. I think he's one of the most dominant players of all time. But he doesn't strike me as the guy that was the easiest person to get along with. But the thing is, even with Michael, they didn't stand a chance, man. Shaquille O'Neal versus Bill Cartwright was just not even fair. Well, and as you look at even the role that Jordan played here, and I love how he talks about this thing. You know, you think, oh, you know, you just, dude, you just roll out of bed, just go play basketball again. He talks about that transformation that he had just spent a better part of a year changing his body into that of a professional baseball player. And it's not just overnight. You just don't snap your fingers and just go back out there on the court and pick up the ball and get back to the game you were used to. There's a complete transformation there and where he didn't have all that extended time to get you know totally prepared to come in you know to rejoin this team where he did and it showed i mean he was losing his legs he didn't have he was gassed he was blown up when they got to the playoffs of course they would run into the orlando magic again and the infamous nick anderson steal which is when it all started. When he went and he called out 45 isn't 23. That was it. That was it. Michael basically took over. But I think the biggest thing from episode seven that people are talking about, Rick, and I, I'm, I'm surprised that this is actually the, the quote that landed, is Jordan, when he's talking about everything that he sacrificed to be Michael Jordan, and when he goes off and he says, look, winning has a price and leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged. When people see this, they're going to say, well, he really wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Well, that's you because you never won anything. And it's it's ironic to me because being the generation that we are, we got to see Kobe so close and this absolutely, to me, sounds like a Kobe Bryant quote. And you know, it was just Kobe Bryant doing his best imitation of Michael Jordan. There was so much of Kobe that was Michael. So I was not surprised to hear this quote. But this is when Jordan gets super emotional and starts crying. And it's uh, the way that it landed on me was Jordan just realizing, listen, y'all motherfuckers think it's easy to be Michael Jordan. It's not easy to be Michael Jordan. And he demanded a certain level of excellence from everybody around him. And this is why Jordan would have never worked as a coach. Because Jordan would be like, just give me the goddamn ball and I'll show you how I want you to fucking do it. Well, I think you know, it, it might even speak to the struggles that he has had as a management type. Absolutely. You know, but I, I think what kind of sums it up inside of that, though. You absolutely, and to me, that's what, again, is so inspiring about that, that you want to try to find those intangibles inside of yourself. 
uh, and in whatever your walk of life is to to try to be that great at whatever to be as much of Michael as you can be, whatever your profession, whatever your passion might be. But the compliment, you know, Jordan saying, I have given everything. I've sacrificed this all. I mean, it might look like, you know, I'm high on the roost, the, the king of the world here, but I've given up the average life. I don't, I can't have any of that. He's going to bring you along with it. I love how BJ Armstrong throws in there. You know what? Those people that are complaining, they wouldn't have rings. They wouldn't be champions, world champions, be forever remembered, if not for Michael Jordan. I do find it interesting because I didn't even think about it until I saw this part of the show. There is one thing that Michael is not telling us. We have not seen anything about Jordan's family. You haven't been introduced to his wife. You haven't been introduced to the kids. He is keeping that completely separate away from this documentary. And I have to believe that that is being done intentionally. I think it's the only way that you get this done, that this is allowed to release. I mean, going into this thing, you and I had conversations. We were blown away that even Michael himself was going to open up like this because of how protected he, protective he is of that, of the Jordan, of the Air Jordan brand. And we do get a little bit from mom as they are talking about the family life and that connection with his dad. And, and I think, you know, there's some great sound bits in here from his mom and, you know, how he was raised and, you know, what the values they tried to instill in him. But you are correct. I mean, you don't see anything, especially from the kids, the wife. And that is because they, he realizes the life of Michael Jordan and he wants them to be away from that, from that spotlight or that, I guess, ridicule target for attacks. Hell, even in today's world, you know, uh, there's a lot there that they could dig up the the cheating you know aspects of this thing and uh, the rough rigors of being on the road and what goes with the jersey chasers and all that those are real those are real deals inside a world of professional sports not just for michael jordan anybody so we're gonna sit down we're gonna talk about episode eight we're gonna talk about bj armstrong and the charlotte hornets i loved it <laughs> fantastic stuff and we also get some seattle supersonics in episode eight. I'm looking forward to that. But first, a word from the Brosters. Bro, if you're a real coffee lover, then you've got to try Brosters Limited Edition Vince Russo Bro Coffee. Available right now at www.thebrosters.com. This limited edition coffee is fresh roasted weekly and shipped directly to your door. You will love the Nicaraguan blend with roasted chocolatey notes when you smell it. Get your Vince Russo Bro Coffee today at thebrosters.com and follow them at Coffee Brosters today on Twitter. Enjoy the best coffee today, bro. From Brosters, Vince Russo brand, and Hameen Media Group. Oh, Huckleberry, how much coffee do you suppose Michael Jordan drank back in the day? Uh, you know, and he's just like driving to work and he's like, all right, what kind of stupid ass shit can I make up today? that I can just say to the media over and over and over again, and I'll hear it echoed until it becomes true in my mind so I can motivate myself to go whip the shit out of the Seattle Supersonics. This this absolutely. This is uh, <laughs> what I really took away from this episode and really loved, and I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm sending you messages during this thing like, God, Jordan is such a prick, and I love it. I absolutely loved where he I mean, he's on top of the world. This guy just went, walked away succeeded in professional baseball comes back they're 
in um, you know really no time. We know we just talked about those struggles, but no time he's back competing for a championship, and he's still got that mentality, you know, just one finger in the air to the whole world because they're all coming at him. It's everything against Michael Jordan, and you know, and it's funny because. Jordan was so worried, like Jordan was doing the media tour before this whole thing launched, you know, kind of like trying to soften people up being like, hey, I'm not perfect. You know, like there are going to be things in this documentary people are not going to like. And I'm hearing the exact opposite. It's like people are embracing this because, God damn, it is nice to see an unapologetic alpha male. Like, you can label it your toxic masculinity all you fucking want to. There's an entire generation or two or three of guys out there who want to be like Mike. And Mike is the only guy with the fucking testicular fortitude to just be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm in this shit for me. I am the fucking alpha of all fucking alphas. I am Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And fuck you. I'm going to suck on this cigar that's gonna that's worth as much as you're going to make all year in my fucking glass of Hennessy. And I'm going to sit here and tell you how fucking great I am. God bless Michael fucking Jordan. I wonder how much of that, you know, is the, the nostalgia of it. And we're going back and people are like, oh, they're remembering a different time. Could you imagine now in 2020... The, the anti-bullying campaigns that would be a, just a, a full onside aerial attack at an individual that was perceived to be in any sport, any kind of walk of life today. Well, and, and well, the guess. thing is, like, most of even our sports stars, right, like, they're apologetic about it. Like, you know, you, you hear Derek Jeter talk about, you know, when he was a rookie coming up in the late 90s and the way that some of those fucking Yankees guys were hazing the fucking rookies, right? And now you look at all those players and they're like, yeah, we, we probably shouldn't have done that. You know, and Michael Jordan's like, no, fuck you. Make the rookies tear the fucking bags. I don't give a fuck. Like, it's just nice to see somebody so unapologetic about it. Well, another example here, you know, inside of this, we get the story with Kerr and Jordan in the fight and Jordan getting dismissed from practice. I mean, could you imagine that hitting, you know, we flip over to FS1, Collins covering this thing, we go to ESPN, it's LeBron the breaking LeBron and Kyle news. Kuzma got into a fucking fist-throwing match, you know, at Lakers practice. It would be everywhere. It would be the fucking lead on the CBS morning fucking news. Absolutely. But in this case here, and you get so much more from, from Kerr on this thing where he's like, you know what? I love how he says it, you know, he's like, hey, I'm just as competitive. I built that same way. I just can't back it up like he can, but I'm not backing down from this SRB. I don't care who he is. Yeah, well, well, and what, and what triggers this whole thing is the Zen master knowing that he's in there just toying with the mind of Jordan to set him <laughs> off like this. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Kerr because he had another quote that I thought was uh, rather interesting. Well, let's get back to, you know, when we jump into this thing. Absolutely. You've got to think, man, this, this is his moment. Probably a defining moment for BJ Armstrong that he's in this new <laughs> setting. He's down in Charlotte, and it, look at what he just did. He even talked about. He's like, "This was the moment. I'm taking everything, every little just ounce of knowledge that I have gathered over all these years, and I am using that to go, you know, pun intended, horn to horn, locking horns with the Bulls, with the big dog Michael Jordan." And he goes out there and has this career defining, the highlight of his freaking life and in, in return you just get jordan and Pippen looking at each other like apparently he didn't learn a lot because he should have just done that <laughs> yeah it, it, it's crazy 
Like, it, Jordan's response is, BJ should have known better. Like, <laughs> you know, Jordan yeah. didn't need a whole lot to get his motor going. Yeah, it, it, you almost got to wonder, too. Like, I'd, I'd love to have, like, spinoff takes. Like, just pan over to Coop Coach over there and have him be like, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember that when that was me. Yeah, he's dead next game, you know? <laughs> well, and, and they, they tell the LeBradford Smith story, too. The Bradford Smith of the, of the Washington Bullets, you know, they're playing a back-to-back, home-and-home with the with the Chicago Bulls. Night one in Chicago, the Bradford Smith scores 37 points. And supposedly, after the game, he, he put his arm around Michael Jordan, and he says, nice game, Mike. And Jordan comes out night two in Washington and scores 36 points in the first half. Only to find out years later that it's complete bullshit and Jordan just made it up. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we got a couple episodes ago where Jordan, he's like, he's super pissed that they weren't like congratulating each other after a game. So now this guy, <laughs> maybe just in passing, you know, is like, hey, good game. Now it's like the worst thing you could potentially do here. What I really, and then we let's get to the good ones here with the with the Supersonics. Two of them here that obviously, I mean, you got Peyton, who's just he's going publicly with this. Hey, I'm the glove. I'm the best defender in this thing, and he. Because they tried staring away from it. And he finally goes to, you know, Carl and says, Hey, I'm taking Jordan. I'm shutting him down. He's going, anyone that would listen, put a microphone in his face and talk a shit about Michael Jordan. I'm just sitting there like, Have you learned nothing from any, any era of Jordan here? Shut your mouth. And then Jordan just completely no sells it when he's watching it on the tablet. <laughs> like, like, oh, no, that he's a good player, but that was nothing. I had something else going on. My mind was somewhere else. Okay. Now, being the Gary Payton fan that I am, I will come to the gloves defense. All right. Inside of the 1996 NBA finals, the first three games, Jordan averaged 31 points a game, five assists, 46% shooting from the field and 50% from three. Gary Payton then takes over and starts guarding Michael Jordan. And the last three games of that series Michael Jordan averages 23.7 points, 3.3 assists, 36% from the field, and 11% from three. Gary Payton had Michael Jordan's number as much as anybody could have Michael Jordan's number because let's face it, 24 points, three assists, 36% from the field is not your average Michael Jordan game. But, but hey, but you got it right. You got it, man, for the directly from the mouth of of Jordan himself, directly from Mike. He was thinking about Father's Day. That had nothing to do with Gary Payton. He completely knows the effort of the glove here. I, that's what I pop for. Oh, yeah. That's and, what and, I love. And, and, and it's, it's cute how he's talking about just that one game, but Payton was on Jordan for three games. I, I mean, <laughs> if I'm the Seattle Supersonics and I can hold Michael Jordan to 24 points, I feel pretty fucking good about myself. I think there should have been more conversation in there of what what the hell was the the logic and the reasoning that we didn't have him on him the entire time. You got the league's MV, defensive MVP. Yeah, you better you better well, sure be checking Jordan. 
what what George Carl would tell you is we knew that Gary Payton was the best defensive player in the league, but we also knew the amount of effort that we would have to exert guarding Michael Jordan. And if we were going to keep up with that Bulls team, we needed Gary Payton full of legs at the offensive end of the floor because we needed Gary Payton to put up 23, 24 points alongside a Kemp putting up his, you know, 30 points. We needed Peyton more at the offensive end of the floor, and he would have been gassed if he would have been on Jordan. Yo, Rainmaker. Well, let's talk about Carl here, because this is the one that really popped me. I think this is the one that really stands out to everybody. Yeah, so the dinner with George Carl that wasn't the dinner with George Carl. Michael Jordan just happens to be at the same restaurant as George Carl. Michael Jordan spots George Carl from across the restaurant, and George Carl basically no-sells Michael Jordan ends up having his dinner, gets up and leaves without, you know, even addressing his airness. And that's all Jordan needed. He was pissed off and he was going to take down the Sonics and go win, you know, his championship. Well, we get confirmation. Uh, I know that because you you catch it on the replay on Netflix, correct? So and one of the things I really love after each episode is that Scott Van Pelt, he'll kind of have like an after show where they kind of recap things and you get some other twists and stories here. So they go right to the source. We get the confirmation. This actually happened. They have George Carl on and, and he confirms everything. They are at this, you know, this very popular Chicago spot here. The, they're having dinner. They are across the room. And indeed, George Carl gets up after his meal and exits without even acknowledging his airness. And this was simply because he had got word. Individuals had told him, Oh, he had actually uh, someone on the team that would it was on a Bulls coaching staff at some point or was with around Michael. And they said, whatever you do uh, at any cost, avoid giving him ammunition to use this against you. So it, it, this is how great this is. So in trying to avoid that situation, he okay. gives Jordan all the ammunition that he needs. But in knowing what we know now about Michael Jordan, Okay, let's say this goes exactly the other way. George Carl sees Michael Jordan come in. Michael Jordan comes in and sits down. Suddenly, you know, the the waiter shows up with the finest bottle of wine sent over from Coach Carl. As Coach Carl finishes his meal, he gets up, he comes over, and he bows before Michael Jordan and worships him as the god that he is before they exchange stories about UNC, and George Carl gets up and leaves. Michael Jordan is going to sit and look at whoever he is sitting there with and be like, can you believe that motherfucker just had the nerve to come walking up to me like that? Absolutely. Jordan would have spun it however he needed to spin it. As soon as he walks in and George Carl is in the same restaurant, the series is over. Absolutely, I agree with you, and that's what it is. It's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I mean, it would have been something, you know. Even if it happened just how you laid it out there, Jargo. I mean, it would have been, you know, Jordan right away would have been like, "Can you believe that son of a bitch?" He, he thinks he's better because he got done eating before us. Yeah, right. Like he would have found a way to spin this. And send over a bottle of wine. What is this? Like a, uh, you know, sorry, like a, a sorry about your luck sort of deal. Does he know who I am? I can afford my own wine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like. What does he think? We're some kind of charity case around here. Right. This is Chicago. I'm Michael Jordan. You think I need this SOB buying me anything? And then over here on the damn floor, bowing at my, bowing at my feet. 
What a fucking pathetic. Yeah. Mocking me. (laughs) That's what it would have been. Yeah. He would have found a way. Like, no matter what, he would have found a way. But it's okay. There would have been anything. I mean, they could have got word. Even if he would have stayed in his hotel. Oh, that that son of a bitch. He thinks he's too good for my city. (laughs) He's just staying locked up in his hotel. He thinks he's too good for Chicago. This is my town. This is my, the championships I built here. He would have found something. That's what's so great about it. Yeah, how awful is it that you know twenty four points a game, four assists? That's just that's that's not a Michael Jordan game. Yeah, and, and, and it, it's one of those things. Like I hear people say, like there's no way Jordan could have averaged forty in the modern day NBA because you know in order for Jordan to average forty. You know, when he would have a game where he would only score 24 points, that would mean that he would have to score 56 points in another game just to average things out. You know, it's it just that's absolutely insane. There's no way he could average 40. And it's like, but a bad game for Michael Jordan was 24 points. There's guys that would kill to score 24 points in an NBA game. Uh, well, Good players. Uh, 24 against somebody like Gary Payton. There's right. nobody in Defensive this league right now. Defensive player of the year. Defensive player of the year. There's no one in this league right now that plays defense like Gary Payton did. No. <laughs> no. Get the fuck out of here. Come on. Let's talk about the Steve Kerr incident. So it, Jordan tells the entire story. Steve Kerr basically corroborates the entire story. And it's a great story. And, and to me, there's people that are some people that are outraged by this because I don't know who they are. We're, we're, we're seeing the most competitive person on the face of the planet. The guy who has sacrificed everything to be Michael Jordan. And he demands that Steve Kerr be just as good of a basketball player as he is. And Steve Kerr knows there's no fucking way that that is humanly possible, but somehow I have to make this guy respect me. If this is going to work brothers fight, I've been in fisticuffs with some of my best fucking friends. Shit happens, especially that much testosterone. You bet, man. It's going to happen. Well, you know, again, you got added to this thing is you've got Phil over there manipulating the system because he's calling these little, you know, tit for tat fouls. That's a fucking foul. Yeah. So at this point, you know, Michael's trying to get geared up. He's trying to get back into that flow. This is, I mean, they're back in business here. They want that championship. And he, and in his mind, you got Phil over there kind of just dicking around with him. And he wants to take it to that next level. They're going to get serious about this thing. And poor Steve Kerr happens to kind of be this pawn inside of this thing. But you got it. But it shows you, you know, what, as we were talking about, you know, where Jordan maybe had that wouldn't be a good coach. And we've seen some of the failures in that management type. I think what we'd get illustrated here, tr- a tremendous piece of a spotlight on actually that is what made Steve Kerr so great when he made that transition. I think Steve Kerr learned a hell of a lot from Phil Jackson when it comes to managing egos, if nothing else. I, I would say so. Just, just himself. You know, with the star power, even outside of Jordan and Pippen, all those other, I mean, just great players on that thing and how fragile of a system that had to be. For someone like Curry, he probably, I mean, he was like a sponge in there, just absorbing all of that information, all of that knowledge. Well, and I mean, now, we even, we, we saw him go after Steve Burrell. And, and Jordan's telling the story about him going after Steve Burrell in, in episode seven, I think it is. 
and how he's like, but Steve is just such a nice guy. Like he, Michael Jordan was disappointed. He couldn't get Steve Burrell to fight him. Steve Burrell was like the number 10 guy on that Bulls team. He was Michael Jordan's backup. Like He averaged like 13 minutes a game for the season. Like, no, no a, Steve Burrell was irrelevant as fuck on that team. And Michael Jordan's trying to get Steve Burrell to fight him. What, what, a, what a job, man. The backup role to Michael Jordan. Yeah, right? Poor bastard. Let's talk about Space Jam as we wrap things up this week. Um, Rick, the, the thing that really stood out to me here was trainer Tim Grover, um, the guy who kind of put together the whole dome and, and the way that these pickup games would work and everything. Uh, Tim Grover, his other clients include gentlemen by the names of Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade. Like He, he kind of knows what he's doing. Um, I, I kind of want to see all those Space Jam games. I'm, I'm kind of mad that we only got like 90 seconds worth of footage from those Space Jam games. I, I really want to see those. That's like Dream Team 2.0 kind of shit right there. I was going to say it was... You know, very reminiscent, and you're thinking about, damn, and this goes back to like 92 with the Dream Team. You got all these sounds, and it, and it was such a hot commodity. I mean, you wanted to get like that exclusive invite to go out there and hoop it up with Jordan. But even the excitement in that sense, really all this was a manipulation system so that Jordan could see what everybody was up to so he could get that measuring stick out there. I mean, it, this was a, a spy gate of its time, right? Yeah, it kind of was. It really kind of was. Yeah, that, that was what was interesting to me about this thing. Well, and the other thing that was interesting to me is is that dome thing that they kind of built for Jordan out there. That's very much what they're talking about doing right now to resume NBA games, about building a couple of those kind of domes and playing games on those kind of courts. Uh Exactly. And it, to see the extent that they went to with these demands, because Jordan was going to settle for nothing less. You know, this this was an important time in his training, getting back to that championship form. And to think, oh, my God, we know the rigors and how intense it is in the filming. I mean, they're talking about, you know, they're up at what, 630, 7 in the morning. You're filming for what, 10 hours? Very little breaks. If he does have a break, he's in getting the weights. And then afterwards, we got what, two, three, four hours of pickup games is in the gym working out. Yeah. You're on the court working out. Yeah, that's crazy, man. It's absolutely crazy. What 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 do you think of the whole dome thing? I'm okay with this. I think it's gonna be great. I'm gonna it's gonna be a unique presentation. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, even inside of this thing that we get some different angles, you know, just kind of reimagine how we viewed the game. Uh take us inside a little bit more. That's it. That will certainly be interesting. As will episodes nine and ten. Wrapping it up next week, Huckleberry. Um, and, and the the tease was the only tease that you really needed to see. Uh, a clip of Reggie Miller saying, "This is it. You're going to retire, Michael Jordan." No, Reggie. No, no, no. You weren't. Um, I, I liked how the delivery in that too. Just not. Just not the verbiage, but he kind of, you can see it in his, he gets, he gives you that wink and that smile. Like Reggie Miller is a different beast altogether, man. That guy's motor was something else. Um, and it, for anybody that is listening to the sounds of our voices, if you have not seen the ESPN 30 for 30 Reggie Miller versus the New York Knicks, do yourself a favor. 
That guy was a stone cold killer. I can't wait to see Reggie Miller attempt to retire Michael Jordan. Dude, uh, you know, looking back at that, Reggie Miller, always one of my my favorite players from the NBA. And he wasn't even the best member of his family. His sister fucking own his ass. And you've got, yeah, I think you're saying, though, you look at the actions, the attitude, the swagger. But, oh, yeah, uh, this guy's wrists were about two inches around. <laughs> you know, his, he probably had like the eight inch biceps. <laughs> he's soaking wet. He looks like he's 150 pounds. But he's the, the most shit talking badass out there. On the, I mean, it's just not against the players. He's challenging the fans. I mean, one of the greatest rivalries of the time is, is him and Spike Lee, the two, arguably the two smallest guys you know, co- around the court there. And they're the they're the entertainment. Spike always getting himself involved. We we saw Jordan going back and forth with Spike Lee in an earlier episode too. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to episodes nine and ten and uh, the poor Utah Jazz because we get two years of the poor Utah Jazz. That's that's what's coming up. But we also get Reggie Miller, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's going to wrap things up for this week's show. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, please hit that subscribe button and then visit the other platform you may not be listening to, whether it be the HTM Podcast Network online, hittingthemarks.com, or Hameen Media online, hackerhameen.podbean.com. Uh, you can keep up with me across all social media platforms, at NotJargo, and you know those Maybe someday I'll get to do a podcast. You know, Harold Meech actually put out, you know, a, a great statement. Didn't talk to people like they were, you know, six-year-olds and, and told people exactly what's going on in the process for New Japan Pro Wrestling to return. So, hey, maybe we'll finally get Destino, a New Japan Pro Wrestling podcast, up and running. Huckleberry, tell the peeps what you got going on and how to keep up with you across social media. Well, of course, you can keep up with me, the art of the beat of the Richard Bronson Vickery. Uh, across all social media platforms at the real RBV you can also catch me uh, I guess what on the air in your ear holes whatever it might be Monday mornings inside the locker room with the great Ben Hamin and the Dr. Man Beast Ted McNaylor also right back here on Tuesday afternoons uh, inside the Hamin Media Group with the Hot Tag WrestleCast I, I got a little bit of a scoop as we do head out of here bud um, a leak for the uh, I guess not the, the actual script but the direction for Space Jam 2. LeBron is going to to save the day, um, but also in it is all the aliens, they get championships too. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. That's great. We'll talk to you next week on Running With The Bulls. See you on the flip. Full of morons, but I've sent Jay and Anissa to declare war on them. 
from the stupid criminals to those Florida man stories you love and the other idiots of Hollywood and DC. These new Hameen soldiers speak the truth, the stupidity in a fun and comical manner. Each week, these two will be bringing on friends and all these crazy characters to give you the punk rock comedy news show you didn't even know that you needed. But you have it now that you're under quarantine. You will listen, infidels. And that's right, there's a bit of uncertainty every week from the live hotline so you never know who's going to call into the show. <laughs> so plant your flag in the sand, grab your friends and suit up, because the War on Morons has commenced, infidels. Visit them now and subscribe at thewaronmorons.podbean.com. YOLO! <laughs>